We're going to open God's Word together now, so if you have a Bible with you, we're in our second week in the book of Colossians, and Deb is going to come and read to us from Colossians 1, 15 through to 23. The Supremacy of the Son of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones of power or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel... This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Amen. Thanks, Deb. Let's pray, shall we? As we come and we look at these words. Lord, we thank you for these um, incredible words about who you are. And Lord, we know that who we are depends on who you are. So I just pray that today we may capture something of a glimpse of just who you are reigning over the universe. Just open our eyes. Perhaps, Lord, if we've become blind to the reality of you, may your light shine ever brighter, we pray. Amen. One of the challenges of everyday life is trying to work out which things are important and which things aren't. So you're driving along in the car and you put the brakes on and there's a grinding sound. You think, is it the brake pads, is it the brake discs, or is it a bit of dirt? And you have to make the decision. Do you go to a garage or do you wait for it to rain? In the hope that it's a bit of dirt. You're on your laptop and suddenly, I don't know if you've seen this screen, but I always call it the blue screen of death. It appears and it says your computer has run into trouble and needs to shut down. Now, does it need to shut down, and like most things in life, you restart it and everything's wonderful? Or does it need to go to the repair shop? And you have to make that decision. Or you open the fridge and a fly flies out. This hasn't happened to me, by the way. But you're there thinking, is that just a coincidence? Or is there a real problem in my fridge? Are you going on the search for maggots? Because in life, we are always instinctively trying to work out what is important, what matters, and what can just be pushed aside, and what doesn't matter. What are those things that we need to be focusing our time on, and what are those things that actually are just stuff, just happen? 
For Paul and this church in Colossae, as he's written to them, we looked at the first 14 verses last week. This is a church for which Paul will be thankful for, but it's not a church without problems. And it's a church that has one main underlying problem from them, which everything else spills out. And this is basically because it's a church in a Greek city. Colossae is a Greek city. It's not a city that has a foundation in Judaism. And so a lot of the converts who were in this church would have a Greek background. They'd be Greek thinkers. I don't know if you remember at school learning all about the Greek gods, you know, Zeus and Artemis and these kinds of people who apparently lived on Mount Olympus. So the the Greeks would have believed in all this. So the minute you say, well, Jesus is the creator of the universe, Jesus is the head over all things, their instinctive mind takes them back to that kind of way of thinking. And Paul has to come against this because that way of thinking will not suffice for Christ. This is not what Jesus is all about. So what does Paul do? Does he write to them a huge great big thick textbook and say, get your head around this. This is how it all fits together. No, he doesn't do that. Does he tell them off and say, well, you should know better. Your thoughts are wrong. No, he doesn't do that either. Rather, what he does is he sings them a hymn. Well, he writes them a hymn. But you just imagine Paul singing a hymn. Most writers agree that verses 15 to 19 of this passage is an ancient Christian hymn. It's a hymn that is a confessional hymn. It tells us about who Jesus is. Now, we have no idea whether Paul wrote these words or whether it was a hymn that was in use in the church anyway. And Paul just says, well, actually, this explains what I want to say. But what we do know about it is that it's incredibly poetic, incredibly beautiful. It's God's word to us. And it will show us an awful lot about who Jesus is. It will show us an awful lot. It's written in a Hebrew style of writing, and it has two verses of the hymn, and each verse has two different ideas. And it's all based around the word head doesn't apparently um, come out in the English, but that's what it's based around in the original. Now, if I say the word head to you, it can mean so many things. This thing is our head, isn't it? We all have one. If you don't have one, you can't exist as a human being. We need our head. But then I say, well, if you're level-headed, I don't literally mean that you've got a flat top to your head. I mean that you keep calm under pressure. But then we use a phrase like, well, two heads are better than one. Now, I don't mean literally a two-headed person is better than one, but I'm using the word head to mean mind, your intellect. But then we get confused and we say, oh, there's somebody sat at the head of the table. Well, that's not that head either, is it? And then there's a head of a river, which is a totally different kind of head. And then we go into a school setting and we say, well, the deputy head said this, and it means something totally different. And we find ourselves getting a bit confused. What does this word head actually mean? Well, in each of those instances, the word head is about origin. It's about source. You know, the mind is the source of how we think. The head is the source of the body. It's one, the one part of the body we just cannot live without. So as Paul sings this hymn to the church, as Paul talks about it, he wants to make it absolutely clear to this new church just who Jesus is. That Jesus is the head of the church, the origin, the source of the church. But more than that, he's Lord over all creation. But who Jesus is, is constantly coming under threat. It was in the early church. These early pagans couldn't get their head around it. They didn't know what to do with it. Through to the 18th, 19th centuries, we see humanists and progressive, modern, liberal theologians trying to say Jesus is less than God. None of this will do for Paul. For Paul, Jesus is God. He is the source. He is the one who holds the universe. Now, in our hearts, perhaps the threat sometimes is a little bit different to all of that. Much of our faith can actually be experiential. Now, I don't just mean that we we seek after experiences of God. 
You know, it is great when we experience the presence of God. And I really believe we should be pressing in and expecting more of the presence of God because that's what the early church experienced. But what I mean is that a lot of our faith is interpreted through our experiences. So if you're watching church online this morning, if you're sat here in the building, we come to church and we react positively or negatively to it. So I don't know about you, perhaps this is just me, but I find myself saying things, oh, I felt really uplifted today. And the reality was it's because Phil led us in a couple of songs that I really like. And it lifts us and it makes us feel that's, that's good. Or it may be that I've gone to church and I've preached and I thought, well, that wasn't very good. Everyone fell asleep. Um, that wasn't, that, I just didn't feel quite, quite there today. And I go back and I feel like a bit deflated. And I can find that my faith is actually quite volatile based on human experience. But actually what Paul is saying is there is a greater reality than human experience. Christian faith, although it can be simple and childlike, is never to be simplistic. Christian faith is rooted in the fact that Jesus is the Lord over the whole universe. Now, we will never understand that. Well, I won't. My brain is just simply not big enough. I don't think any of our brains is big enough to fully understand how Jesus is fully God, fully human, and Lord over creation. But if we want a store, if we want a faith that can fend off the storms of life from the world, the flesh, and the devil, we need to grapple with some of these great truths of the Bible. A number of years ago, you may remember, we, we prayed for a really good friend of mine who was really seriously ill. Um, now, sadly, he died 18 months ago. Um, but I can always remember, you know, talking with him, even in those days up to right near the end. And it would always amaze me is that he wouldn't let go of a Colossians 1 type faith. His reality was absolutely rubbish at the end. He couldn't do anything. But he would still have this hope based on this kind of passage, that Christ was bigger than all of this, that whatever we face, that Christ is bigger. Christ is greater. There is no reality that can speak over Jesus. So let's see exactly what Paul says. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you might want to look. We'll try and keep the words on the screen as well. Verse 1 of the hymn is verse 15 to 16 in our Bibles. Now imagine you're sat in a room, and there's a room next door to you, and somebody else is sat in that room, but there's a wall in between. You can't see them. You have no idea who that person is. Open a door in between the two rooms and put a mirror in the doorway, and you can see them. You see a reflection. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but when we look in the mirror, that's who we are. That's what we look like. Like it or not, that's what we look like. A mirror gives us the exact image of who we are. The sun is the image of the invisible God. He is exactly God. He is not like a sort of God light or a a bit of a demigod or somebody who shows us parts of God's character. He doesn't offer us some nice soothing thoughts to follow or a bit of a self-help manual. But he is God. And this matters. This really, really matters. Because if Jesus isn't God, or is some kind of God light, or just a man filled with an overabundance of God's spirit, then he can't save us. We can't be forgiven. His words become things that we can critique. They're full of human error and ego. If Jesus is less than God, then our whole faith starts to fall apart. So Paul will not have any of this. Jesus is the image of God. He is God himself. Now, we are image bearers of God. Genesis tells us that. We, we can create, we can love, we can think, we have free will. But we are not like Christ, and we need to hear that as well. We are created. Christ is uncreated. He has always been 
and will always be. Verse 15 to 16, he's the creator, the firstborn. Now that doesn't mean that he was created, but rather, as one person says, it's not in reference to time, but to status. He is the one who, again, is the origin of creation. Lord over creation, in whom all things were created. Now in Colossae, there were people who were afraid of the spiritual powers. They were fearful, particularly in the folk and the pagan religions of the time, that if they didn't sort of placate these evil powers, they they would get attacked by them. And so Paul says in verse 17, actually all things, all things are subject to Christ. The follower of Jesus need not be subject to the fear of the unseen. I don't know if you read um, a report that was in the news the other day. And I think it was, it was in the BBC, it was in The Guardian, and it was talking about young people and their attitude to the climate emergency. And it said that four out of ten young people will fear having a family of their own because of the kind of world that they would bring children into. Four out of ten, 40%. The pandemic that we're, we're still living through has stripped, I think, many of us in, in terms of our confidence in our ability as human beings to solve problems. You know, this, this virus... And we were talking at our leaders away day, and I can't remember who said it, but they said, if you put the whole of the coronavirus that has sadly taken so many lives and brought so many people to illness, you could fit the whole virus into a can of coke. That's how much space it would take up. And so as human beings, we are affected by things that seem out of control on the huge level, like a climate emergency, and on the small level by a virus that cripples and brings society to its knees. So how does this passage speak into these kind of narratives that we live in? Well, it simply reminds us this. Whatever we're being told, no matter how true it is, and this is not to say that these things are not true, no matter how true it is, whatever fear we are wrestling with, no matter how real those fears, whatever future we anticipate for ourselves, even if it's a scary one, even if it's a scary one, there is no narrative greater than what we find in this passage. There is no reality that is greater than Jesus, who is the Lord over everything. The Son of God, the incarnate Christ, the firstborn, holds it all. And in his death, in his resurrection, in his coming into our midst, he has stepped into our lives to sort out the mess and to bring us into God's new creation. Does that give us hope this morning? Does that give us a different narrative to tell ourselves? A different reality to live for? Something that matters more than actually a lot of those other very serious things that happen in our lives? Well, Paul moves us on, and we get a second verse of the hymn. I wish I knew what tune this was sung to. Wouldn't it be great to sing these to the original tune? So this is Christ who has stepped into our lives, verse 18 and 19. Whilst Christ is the firstborn over all creation, whilst he is the one who speaks creation into being, Whilst he is the beginning and the end, he is also the head of the church. And again, this matters. Because there's a tendency, I think, in churches, we use the things like, oh, it's our church. You know, ministers sometimes say, oh, it's, that's my church, that one. And it's like, excuse me? No, the church belongs to Jesus. He is the head. Thankfully, and I mean this with all seriousness, you know, the leadership team, a minister, a pope, a bishop, a metropolitan patriarch, they are not the heads of the church. Jesus is the only head of the church. We submit to him. We don't make up our own agendas. We submit to Jesus' agenda. And so whilst it's good for us as a church to think about vision and to think about what God is calling us to in this context, it has to sit under the commission of Jesus, who at all times and in all places remains the head of the church. 
We are called to be makers of disciples, called to be worshippers, called to be those who do what Jesus calls us to do. But if you're anything like me, we get distracted. Do you get distracted in life? I know I do. You know, I can be working on something and the phone rings. And immediately my mind goes to wonder who's ringing me. Or a message pings in on one of the million message platforms that they can now ping in on. Or it can be something slightly left field. You know, I was working upstairs in the office in church the other day. And I was, I was prepping for this talk. And about every two minutes, a hand dryer went off downstairs. And could I concentrate? Absolutely not. I had to go and investigate where this hand dryer was and turn it off. Because I was getting distracted. I was outnoised. That's the new word for this morning. Outnoised by other things. Do you ever get that? That Jesus, the centrality of who Jesus is, gets outnoised by other stuff. Now, I don't know what your other stuff is. I don't know what that, that is in your life. I know what it is in mine. But sometimes it can just, all this stuff about Jesus and the glory of the Son of God gets pushed to one side by the busyness of other things. We become so easily distracted. Verse 18, Paul reminds us again, he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Christ is not one voice among many, but he's the one who ushers in God's new creation. He rose so that we will rise from the dead when we follow him and are in Christ. Verse 19, another statement of the fullness of God. Verse 21, Paul speaks of our alienation from God, the huge chasm between our minds in their fallen state and God. And then verse 20, and we'll come back to this in a few moments as we take communion. We're reminded that it's only through the blood of Christ, only through that shed blood, through the resurrection, that we too can become friends of God. We can have reconciliation. We can become part of God's new creation. It's not through what we do. It's all about what Christ has done. Now, one thing this cannot be is slightly important. That is not an option with this passage. This is either incredibly important and matters more than anything, or it's a load of rubbish and I might as well go home and cut the grass. It's it's that kind of balance. It either really, really matters, or it doesn't matter. Paul leaves us no other option. And so it leaves us really this morning, just a question, I think, for us to reflect on, which will become really important as we go through this book and say, well, actually, because of who Jesus is, then how do we live? And we'll, we'll, we'll come to those later on in this book. But how much does this matter to you this morning? If you really believe what Paul says here, how much does it matter? How much does it matter? Matthew 16, 13 to 20, and with this, I'll close. I'll just read these verses out. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. What's my response? What's your response to that question of Jesus this morning? Who do you say that I am? Because who we say Jesus is absolutely matters, and it changes everything. Let me pray for us, and then hand over to the music team, and then we'll lead into communion. Let's pray. Who do you say that I am? Let's just spend a moment, let's just search our own hearts to see how we respond to Jesus' question.
Lord Jesus, as we gather around your table this morning, we are reminded that you are the firstborn over all creation, the head of the church, the one who has supremacy over all things. Thank you that you reign with the Father and with the Holy Spirit as the triune God. And Lord, perhaps where we have got distracted from this central truth of our faith, where other things have pushed in and we're, we've been outnoised by other things, Lord, I want to pray that you will keep us focused today. Help us once again just to spend time meditating on your word. To think, well, so what? What does this mean for my life? What now has to be different? So just in the quietness, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you minister into our lives? Would you help us to seek you at a fresh new level? Lord, would we take bread and wine? Would you reveal again what it meant that Jesus came for us? Lord, we thank you that you are with us by your spirit. We pray that you'll keep ministering to us as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name.